Hello, dearest patrons. Welcome back to the Alpha Bunga Bunga Reading Club, or Bunga Cast, as we now insist on being called, much to the consternation of many of you. This is the second of the 2022 series. Uh, this is part of the section on emergency politics, and we are discussing Agamben's state of exception. Phil, uh, Phil's leading this one, so uh, take us away. Hi. Um, and welcome to listeners and welcome to Reading Club patrons and welcome to George and Alex to, to BungaCast. It's good to see you guys here. So um, this was obviously the choice of um, Agamben and also the choice of this theme with which we've begun the Reading Club, kicked off our new Reading Club this year about state of emergency and biopolitics was obviously inspired by the last two years of pandemic and covid and lockdowns. And one of the things that's striking is how much, how rapidly that has all been erased from the news since the Russian invasion. And notwithstanding that, I don't think that this means that any of this is out of date. And hopefully that'll become clearer as we get into the content of Agamben's ideas. Um, but also very strikingly, it seems to me, in keeping indeed with the tenor and the thrust of Agamben's ideas is the fact that one emergency is substituted for another to very effectively indeed to the extent that just as one the emergency was ending, another one, a world geopolitical crisis in this context, has arisen to take its place. And notwithstanding the ins and outs of the Russian invasion, the politics of Ukrainian resistance, um, and all of the kind of surrounding questions of foreign policy and diplomacy, it is difficult to avoid the sheer um, contiguity, I suppose, and the continuity of one crisis and the next. Um, and that, I think, you know, needs to be borne in mind when thinking about how we've transitioned from the end of the lockdowns into a geopolitical crisis. And also connected to that, obviously, Giorgio Agamben, Giorgio Agamben, his theories um, achieved prominence and were crafted in an earlier geopolitical period, which was the period of the war on terror. And to many, in many ways, along with one or two others, such as Hart and Negri and their book Empire, um, Agamben was perhaps the leading, the premier theorist of the global war on terror from the left. So it was this book and Homo Seca that, um, or homo sacer, however it's pronounced, I'll leave the correct Latin pronunciation to Alex, who pays a lot of attention to these things. So he can correct me afterwards. Um, but they were the two kind of leading texts to try and understand what was going on with respect to the legal aspects of the war on terror and some of the most prominent um, travesties that were committed at the global level in the name of the war on terror. So specifically the black sites and Guantanamo, the military base in Cuba that the US, the military base that the US leases from Cuba and which was used as a site of imprisonment for Al-Qaeda terrorists and for Taliban prisoners taken from Afghanistan. And they were put there in prison famously precisely because they didn't, that way they would not fall under the jurisdiction of US courts, but also fall outside the remit of international law. So Guantanamo Bay, the prison there, and also the various CIA torture sites and black sites that were put up around the world. Agamben seemed to provide the way in which to understand this new period of heavily militarized um, liberal internationalism conducted under the or in which politics was pursued with a justification of the emergency 
stemming from the war on terror and the need to respond to al-Qaeda. And obviously that puts us, um, you know, that does give us some um, background to think about in terms of the war on terror, because the other element, obviously, that's striking about the war on terror is that the lockdowns and the COVID emergency began just as the war on terror um, was uh, being wound down in the fading days of the war on terror. So a few things, I suppose, to note about that. Um, I'll just read out a quote from Agamben, which I think is a wonderful, um, it kind of wonderfully locates it um, in the moment. So when the Americans had invaded Iraq and were aiming to democratize the Middle East, he says on page 18, at the very moment when it, the West, would like to give lessons in democracy to different traditions and cultures, the political culture of the West does not realize that it has entirely lost its canon. And this, by this, he meant the substitution of a paradigm of emergency government for the traditions of liberal democracy um, that had grown up over the previous 200 years. Now, it's worth noting here also that Agamben had very particular kind of histrionic political responses and how far those histrionic political responses are connected to his theory is something we'll hopefully talk about in a bit more detail. But famously, he um, refused to travel. He said he publicly said he wasn't going to travel to America after the U.S. introduced biometric identification, demanded biometric identification in passports as part of the new security provisions they brought in in the wake of the terror attacks of 2001. And he compared the biometric identification to the tattoos that were put onto prisoners in Auschwitz. And he said it was a similar kind of um, a similar kind of response, a similar kind of biopolitics where the state was um, rendering us powerless and also literally kind of imprinting itself on our bodies in order to better control and manipulate us. And then, of course, he eventually wrote back from that and did end up traveling to the US um, for some reason or other. So his um, principled stance didn't last very long. But Agamben's politics was also mirrored more widely on the left. Famously, Amnesty International pursued a campaign against Guantanamo, where they compared Guantanamo to the Gulag. Um, and so his theory of talking about how the provenance of emergency politics at the end of the 20th century were rooted in the experiences of or the emergence of the Third Reich was something that was um, more widespread across the left. It wasn't something that was restricted to a gambit. So um, Jeff Schellenberger, in an essay that you'll find included in the show notes, he makes a good point where he says that a Gambon's influence faded with the end of the Bush administration and the beginning of the Obama era. So Obama campaigned against the Bush administration and specifically campaigned on stopping torture um, by American security forces and also by saying he was going to shut down Guantanamo, neither of which happened, certainly not the shutting down of Guantanamo. But nonetheless, Agamben's influence seems to have faded in that period. And so it raises the question as to how far the state of exception, which had become so prevalent in theory, was simply a kind of partisan political um, tool as part of the Democrats jousting with the Republicans in that period. And since then, obviously, um, Agamben has um, achieved a new prominence in the wake of the pandemic with his criticisms of the so of what he called the medico-technical despotism enacted, particularly in his home country of Italy, um, which took the 
um, went into lockdown earliest in the aftermath of the Chinese lockdown. And he's been a vocal critic of vax mandates, of all the associated aspects of lockdown. And this has earned him a tremendous deal of notoriety and controversy, and particularly strikingly from people who used to support him. Um, particularly those who once would have talked in the terms that Gambon provided when they criticised the policies of the Bush administration, um, have now turned on him and um, you know suggested he's a quack, he's um, entirely lost his moorings, that he's um, a shill for all sorts of um, far-right conspiracy theorists and what have you. And so this is a remarkable about-face for somebody who is the theoretical darling of the academic left um, 20 or so years ago. So I want to turn over to um, I want to turn over to George and Alex before we get into the questions to see if they have anything they want to kind of um, offer by way of introduction. The only thing I would add is I found particularly what was so interesting to me about this was his detailed legal history of Western governments and particularly the fascist um, and liberal democratic states in the interwar period and tracing the origins of states of emergency and the legal kind of origins of emergency regimes to the interwar period. And I found that much more interesting and important than some of the more obscure genealogical battles and etymological battles he has with various translators and historians over certain questions of um, Latin interpretation stemming from the Roman Republic and the Principate. But we'll get more into that um, in due course. Anyway, so over to you, boys. What did you think? I'd read um, Where Are We Now, which is his book on on COVID. So and I think that was the first, you know, full book of his that I'd read. So I, I guess I had I had high expectations. And I, I would agree with you, Phil, that the, the philology, as always, is quite boring. Like the difference between potestas and potentia, you know, you can argue about this all day. Um, but the the interesting bit of the I mean, there's obviously some some theoretical distinctions which are which are useful and, and interesting, but it's that history, like he tracing the origin of these ideas and then situating them and making, I think, quite a compelling case for the the centrality um, of the state of exception to <clears throat> to Western conceptions of 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 law and sovereignty. So, yeah, I mean, I would just one. One, I don't know whether to to mention this uh, mention this now, but this this idea of techno, technological sanitationist despotism, which is how he characterizes COVID. I think it's a um, that's his use of state of exception in analyzing COVID. I think is 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 brilliant, um, and he t- he kind of takes it as the the legal juridical underpinning of um, the transformation effectuated by COVID. Um, and yeah, I mean, combine this with this with the religious um, apparatus as he describes it of science, and then just on the social plane, digital technology and social distancing as a new structure of human relationships. I mean, he he has a theory of COVID which is grounded in large part in his analysis of the state of exception. And I think there's you know relatively few, I, I would say at this point, social theories of of COVID and, and what happened. So definitely somebody to engage with on this on this topic yeah that's and it's yeah. useful to bring to bring that book into it interestingly uh, my, my interpretation was i mean taking what phil said and i agree that the more interesting aspects is i think in part two if i'm not mistaken the kind of 
historical political legal analysis of uh, the initiations of state of his exceptions from the First World War onwards and how you know, effectively the fall begins then, um, I think is very interesting that we've been in to a certain extent uh, the, the period of states of exception since uh, the First World War. Um, I thought, thought that was very useful. But then what that brought to mind, and I remember noting down early on when I was reading it, that this means that beneath the seeming exceptionality of the pandemic, in fact, what what is the truth of the pandemic is it's continue, it's, is, is the fact that it represents continuity. So there's nothing exceptional about, or that's overstating it, but at least in relation to this legal, to this question of whether the law still applies or whether we're in an omic state where the executive can just issue decrees and so on, the pandemic is actually completely unexceptional in this history. It's merely a continuation, perhaps an acceleration or a, an elaboration um, or an iteration of, uh, of the states of exception. And that I think should give us pause for thought as well in terms of how you know, one might respond to um, to some of the kind of COVID measures or um, what we might, now that most of them are being lifted in most places, um, how we can hold power to account for what has been done. Well, but there's a Russian invasion of Ukraine, which the West well, has and to... Actually, let me, let me just, let me just uh, yeah, actually, I want to address that because you, you mentioned that, you know, very conveniently, it seems that Ukraine followed on from COVID, but it's important to remember that COVID very conveniently followed on from various populist, populist insurgencies. So yeah. that sequence, we can trace it back and you can probably trace it back uh, further than that as well. Yeah, and I think I mean, perhaps... Yeah. Sorry, George, go on. No, I mean, <clears throat> to, to kind of bring in the, the parochial... Anglo perspective, like there was less than two months between leaving the EU and lockdown and then, you know, similar time between, and obviously, you know, Britain at the centre of the world, um, between the the British government lifting all COVID restrictions and, and the, you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, yeah, it does feel like we're in a permanent state of state of crisis on this, on this side, at least we get, you know, every two years or every few years we get like, you know, you've got to take a holiday, so you get a few weeks to just of not of not having a crisis, and then it's back to the next one. So you make so Alex. I mean, this is interesting because Agamben definitely roots um, the emergence of crisis in the First World War um, in the Wilsonian. So the Wilsonian government's um, red scare, essentially, both its management of the U.S. economy, but also the Wilson terror that was mounted against. Um, radicals against socialists, anarchists, and um, immigrant labor in the aftermath of the First World War with the Palmer raids and so on. Um, that, plus the emergency legislation initiated by the French government, followed by the emergency legislation built into the Weimar Constitution, as well as the kind of instability of the Weimar Republic and what have you. Um, he traces all of it back to that period. And I you know, it's interesting in itself, right? And then, but what's interesting is there's no kind of, and what would be useful perhaps, and this is something we should maybe seek to do. Um, and, you know, if our listeners have any suggestions, please do feed them in. But it'd be useful to have a periodization then of emergency rule across these periods, right? Because you have that interwar period, which according to Agamben is the descent, I suppose, of the bourgeois revolution, the bourgeois states innovate the ideas of state of exception, modern states of exception in the Napoleonic period. 
Um, but they really kind of slide into permanent emergency rule, according to him, from the Palmer raids and the German occupation of France and the New Deal, and that stretches through into the Second World War. That continues into the Cold War um, with the emergence of the U.S. kind of with the um, witch hunts, McCarthyism, the emergence of the U.S. security state and what have you. At the end of the Cold War, that there's a brief period before it rolls into into new crises, and particularly, obviously, um, the war on terror, the Patriot Act, and the emergence of Guantanamo Bay, the drone assassination campaigns, including against, notoriously against U.S. Civilian, um, U.S. citizens as well. Um, if they were identified as terrorists, they could be executed with impunity abroad. Um, so all of that rolls over and then into the COVID emergency. And so we have essentially over the last hundred years, the institutionalization of permanent emergency. But what Agamben doesn't does is kind of carve up that period into its differences, into war period, Cold War, war on terror, and then obviously COVID. And now we have a new geopolitical crisis as well. And perhaps it would be useful to think about what the differences between those periods are. He gives us a kind of the origins, but not to differentiate those periods. Anyway, that aside. I, um, I have yeah. some. No, I think that's an, an interesting way to think about it. Like the, you know, Cold War, war on terror, COVID as as three um three periods of the kind of modern state of exception which does start with with world war one but he also talks about the french revolution being the origin of the state of siege and this being an important part of the the concept and also a lot about roman law as well so there must be there's a longer there's a longer history there and i'm sure we'll sort of unpick that a little bit but he i think it's not yeah i guess the mode of presentation in the book is is uh, not there's n- not enough tables in the book. It would be good to have a table which periodizes it um, and which shows the different um, it, ages or <clears throat> eras of state of exception. I think every, men- every every book should have at least one table. He mentions its origins in the French Revolution and he talks about its use by the Bonapartist state, which I think is probably there's a deeper connection there after the. Um, after the failure of the 1848 revolution in France and the establishment of the Bonapartist dictatorship under Louis Napoleon, which um, then obviously achieves an even kind of greater prominence with the Paris Commune in 1870. There's, um, you know, all of that is, um, I think, important. There's probably more to be looked at there um, and to think about. And obviously, I mean, you know, the what justifies also the emergency, particularly the, Will, the Wilson terror, isn't just the war itself but obviously the Bolshevik revolution as well in 1917 as part of instigating the, um, or that the liberal democracy responds to the political challenge of Bolshevism by permanent um, emergency rule effectively. So we can, um, we can get into some of the questions though, to think about our organizing our claims. So Agamben says on page 14, He says, the declaration of the state of exception has gradually been replaced by an unprecedented generalization of the paradigm of security as the normal technique of government. And we've been talking about this, and I suppose the question is, do we agree? It seems like we do. Is there anything we want to add to this idea that the paradigm of security has been generalized as the normal technique of government? Is there any moment or period? I mean, is there any way, any evidence to the contrary? I think the history there is maybe a little bit more recent. I mean, certainly there's a prehistory of securitization, but I think it's really since the end of the Cold War where security grows to the extent that it becomes applied not just to realms formerly 
thought of as applicable to security. I mean, you know, obviously kind of crime, but also um, international, you know, conflict and uh, indeed the threat of insurrection. But this securitization is something that now happens or is a prism through which so much public policy is carried out. Maybe that's what's different. Sure. It applies to health. It applies to, It's a you know, word that's coined in the aftermath of the in the aftermath of um, the Cold War, but I'm not sure it doesn't, because, I mean, he makes the point that the emergent, the economic emergency is something that is begun by liberal democracies, pioneered yeah. by liberal democracies in the interwar period with the New Deal. Um, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal is explicitly legitimated by reference to an economic emergency as desperate as an enemy invading our territory. And the Popular Front government also pioneers emergency declarations in its attempt to manage sure, but the, but these are pre, the depression economy. But these are pre-welfare state, broadly speaking. And so the expansion of the scope of the state and what it what it does um, means that there are further realms to be securitized, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, but I suppose it's the point the welfare state is founded through the extension of the idea of emergency. Right. So that would be one point. But then also, I mean, you know, like um, disease and poverty in the 40s and 50s are seen as um, emergencies that need to be addressed to stop the spread of communism. Um, you know, like art mm. is funded famously, you know, abstract expressionism and what have you in art is funded by the CIA and all sorts of cultural fronts are supported by the Soviets or by the CIA in different kind of forms. Um, as part of the part of this global kind of uh, st ideological struggle, so you see the spillover of emergency politics into other domains long before, um, long before um, the war on terror and COVID. Oh, I, I take that point. I guess what I'm wondering is: is emergency politics and securitization are those completely coterminous? And I don't think so. So the the precise question about treating matters as secure. I mean, if you, okay, so there's a health crisis, take the obvious example, and I'm almost loath to do it because it brings us on to COVID uh, necessarily, and I didn't intend to do that, but um, we are where we are. So, you know, health, you might try to, for example, deal with the problems of poverty and the health consequences of that in the 1950s by providing better housing and provide solutions for that. Okay, there's a emergency imperative behind it to deal with communism, but those things are still dealt with kind of, in some sense, the means match the end, whereas the securitization approach after, uh, you know, after the end of the Cold War um, and growing in the past two decades would seem to me to uh, involve a, a treat of the securitization of things so that it so that kind of security intercedes into the very kind of molecular level of how you treat health, for example, that everything becomes a security threat, not in reference to some big other security issue, but that um, obesity becomes a crisis, which needs to be dealt with in security terms, not like, oh, we need to deal with obesity, because then if people, you know, fat people will vote for communism to extend the analogy in a, in a, in a weird way. Um, but, you know, that, that everything becomes a, a seen as a threat, right? And that pollution, therefore, be also becomes seen as a threat in some sense or another, rather than just dealing with pollution as a problem in and of itself. Yeah, I, so I, as you were talking about that, it made me think that maybe the, the paradigm of um, security as a normal technique of government, maybe there's like a, an, an end point to it. Like if if the risks are so at uh, such a molecular level or are so widespread, then um, do you move from the kind of, and this is something that Pete 
Pete Ramsey talks about in his book, The Insecurity State. Do you move from this kind of vulnerable subject to the vulnerated subject? And I will probably actually get get the this this distinction wrong. But the basic idea being that you <clears throat> like security means that you want to protect, or this is the justification at least, you protect people from themselves, from each other. Um, and the vulnerated subject is because people are vulnerable in that first case. And the vulnerated subject by distinction is already injured, already like has suffered the consequences so like is there a point at which the securitization becomes so widespread that it almost undermines itself because you're basically arguing that people <clears throat> must have been already already like there's no point to security if the risks are so widespread that you've already been injured right why buy insurance if you've already broken the 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 thing that you're going to insure against what's the, well, what, what's the impl- what would be the implication of that in relation to kind of states of emergency or states of exception that they become less compelling if based on security logic because so what do they have to be based on then something else uh, i didn't really fully think it through i said uh, as alex was talking i had this idea which means i hadn't fully formulated well, it but so right, i mean that's, but that's, the quote you're 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 declaring an emergency in response to to something or at least nominally there's some there's some threat but if you've already been injured then doesn't that make that threat in in some ways less compelling as a as a kind of an anchor for that but that the, i think but then, but then then it makes them more apt to be securitized in a much more traditional law and order sense so i'm thinking here for example um, mass, well, huge swathe of humanity, which now lives in mass slums in, in urban peripheries, right? Um, uh, and there they are, I guess, people who you could say are already injured, are already um, affected by unemployment, by pollution, by poor health, by crime, by et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Already extremely insecure. And that there isn't really an attempt to protect people then. Rather, that whole mass of people is cast as a security threat to the center, whether it's the center of the city or the global north, because they'll be immigrating or whatever it might be. Um, so that doesn't seem to me to get beyond the security paradigm. It seems to me a, an example of a just more straightforwardly traditional security paradigm where, or I say traditional, I, I, I don't mean a traditional security paradigm as in threats between states. I mean, really just that these are the sort of the new threats of the post-Cold War era in which you know, masses of slum dwellers, for example, are seen as security threats because they might invade the high rises and whatever, gated condominia and so on. So, I mean, if we just, I mean, I want to move on, but just, he says, he makes the point, the declaration of the state of exception. So he's talking about a very formal process um, governed by constitutions and laws about the relationship between executive and legislative power. Um, in the kind of classical constitutional canon, he says that has been replaced by a generalization of the paradigm of security. So if that's true, that there is no no process of formal transfer anymore, and it's kind of executive decree um, and an administrative state that acts without um, kind of reference to legislators and to constitutional norms and so on, then why, you know, there's still a ritual around emergency, right? Um, we had, you know, Boris Johnson come on TV in the UK to announce the lockdown. We had a whole new theatre developed around the emergency with um, briefings from uh, government uh, scientific advisors, the SAGE committee here in the UK, with a whole kind of um, 
theatre that went with it, flags and stands and a new room, which became familiar, a new kind of briefing room, which became familiar to citizens. And I'm sure that's a similar kind of tale that's told, um, that can be repeated throughout the world in this period, that it came with a whole new theatre. So what is the, I suppose, the follow-on question is then, there still is a theatre around this stuff, and what mm. role does it serve? Um it's not just as if it is just one decree after another, but they do have to go through, they do go through this formal rituals of a new emergency, new things need to be done, new powers well, need to be declared. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, and, and so the, the point that I was originally going to make in response to the question before I kind of derailed us in that, with that uh, vulnerable, vulnerated distinction is, yeah, so declaration of state of exception, that is a, at least, that's a kind of a public um, yeah, you said theatre, but that is a kind of public political act. And then the paradigm of security as a normal technique of government. I think he chooses his words quite carefully. Like a technique of government is something which is about management. And, you know, that brings in the, the, the technical experts and you can kind of have a much smoother um, controlling of, of things. You don't have to have that kind of, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's potentially more, more hidden and less public because you don't have to have that, as you said, the, the, the the powerpoints with all the charts and everything like that instead it's you know we've had this we've had this committee and they have said yes there is this security risk and it's probably better if we just don't alarm people too much we're just going to put in place the 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 changes that need to be um that need to be uh done and we'll kind of you know frying them the right amount so that they can uh, acquiesce to this so yeah i mean i think that's that's kind of a bit strange in a book about the state of exception that he's sort of saying well actually this kind of the formal announcing of this is quite rare you don't have very often um the prime minister of this country smirking on tv while he's saying that there's going to be a, a national lockdown so yeah i mean i think i think he's right about that though but i think it's i mean it's not just a theater it's really about in some sense the whole juridical order, if that's too grand, at least there's the question of how does this relate to the law, right? So that it, that the states of exception are not truly states of exception because they don't dispense with the law entirely, right? There's still laws that are passed. They still deal with the legal apparatus. So it's not a passage to like pure dictatorship. And I will come on to discuss the distinction that Gambin talks about in relative to liberal democracy and dictatorship and fascism and how those all relate. But um, sticking just with the kind of, you know, supposedly liberal democracies that we live in, um, there is the state of exception. I mean, he says this earlier on that the that it means the shift from a parliamentary to an executive democracy. And I think this is entirely clear. And on this podcast, we've discussed enough kind of political science um, understandings of this that we all know what that means, increasing executive power, and it's very evident in parliamentary democracies, but even in presidential ones where there's increasing rule by decree. Um, but he also says that, the, what, that is, what is even more important than this is that the exception means the separation of force of law and law, on the other hand, right? So that you still have the law being operative, but it doesn't really have, it, it might not really be in force, while decrees, which aren't law, um, exist and they actually gain the force of law, right? And so this is why he uses this funny formulation of force of law, but with law crossed out, where the state of exception is still like exists in a relationship to law. It's not like you've gone completely extra legal or into this anomic thing where like the state just decides to do things. It's still pursuing it through the 
appearance of law, um, while the actual law, which protects citizens and rights and so on, um, becomes sort of inactivated. Um, and I think that's what's kind of going on. So it's not just, I, I, and I, I, I'm not really drawing to a point, I guess more just to throw the question back is like, what is the implication of that when you have a state of exception, which doesn't kind of speak its own name, which it still kind of exists in relation to law, because the uh, the kind of hyper um, or hysterical kind of response, for, for example, to COVID is, uh, the law is completely gone. It's, it's now we're in dictatorship. And I don't think that's, that's quite right. And Agamben wouldn't agree with that, I don't think either. So I wanted to move us to our next um, theme, which is looking at the, we've touched upon this already. So he mentioned, he puts a great deal of stress on the fact that part of the way in which this generalization of the paradigm of security happens is the fusion of economic and political states of exception in the depression, in, essentially. So is there any, I mean, we've, uh, is there anything we want to add to this question of what is the significance or implication of a Gambon rooting his paradigm of government in the 20 years crisis or the interwar period. I mean, why is there anything else that we need to say about the fact that it begins then? I don't, only to say that it's, yeah, you kind of, in the end, have this sense of a very short period of peak bourgeois <laughs> um, of the 19th century and its liberties, um, which actually is short lived. And of course, as we know, not fully applied, you don't have general generalized franchise and whatever, but the short period in which the bourgeoisie lives up to its own kind of constitutional ideals, um, which are rooted in freedom and equality is actually a very relatively short period. Um, some point in, you know, in, in some period of the 19th century. And of course, we have to exclude the Bonapartist period and blah, blah, blah. So it's actually, actually geographically and temporally pretty, pretty, you know, circumscribed. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's true. And I do yeah. think um, we mentioned already, I think the fact that bourgeois society enters its kind of um, terminal crisis in with the, which you can date to the Russian Revolution and the First World War. And um, judging, at least by the state of exception, it never emerges from it, it seems. They, so, really, they really had quite a short run at it, didn't they? Like, it was only the long 19th century, like 1789, maybe, to like 1914. That was the, their whole, like, political project, their whole class was, that's all they could achieve. Not very impressive. Any bourgeois listeners we've got, I'm not impressed. Try harder in the future, please. And yet Marx was very impressed, and he, but he imagined it all coming, crashing down much earlier. And in fact, then, then it actually, you know, was attempted and, and, and you know, and actually never did. So, um, you know. I'm just more difficult. I'm just harder to impress. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, not too impressed by all of these uh, wonders surpassing pyramids and exoduses of populations and all that nonsense. Anyway. So... What is, uh, he makes this point, which I thought was is important and worth thinking about a bit. So he says, formally speaking, the fascist dictatorships were not properly speaking dictatorships. So, and cutting against the conventional way in which we use this language, he says on page 48 in chapter three, neither Hitler nor Mussolini can technically be defined as dictators. Mussolini was the head of government, legally invested with this office by the king, just as Hitler was chancellor of the Reich, named by the legitimate president of the Reich. 
As is well known, what characterizes both the fascist and Nazi regimes is they allowed the existing constitutions to subsist. And this is, he goes on to talk about the dual state in which the fascist dictatorships, the party structures and so on, developed a second structure alongside the um, the existing kind of bourgeois order, which was never fully legally formalized or in deeply institutionalized. So he says, from a juridical standpoint, the term dictatorship is entirely unsuitable for describing such regimes, just as, moreover, the clean opposition of democracy and dictatorship is misleading for any analysis of the governmental paradigms dominant today. Yeah. What do we think? Oh, I mean, I, I think he's probably correct in that. In that, again, this also refers to what I was saying before that there's still uh, a sort of tarrying with the legal edifice, and it's not entirely extra legal. And it's not that authority is entirely and purely based in the person of the in excuse me, the person of the dictator, um, whatever the you know Führer principle might suggest. Right. So it, although absolute authority is supposedly vested in Hitler, there's still this kind of um, pretense of going along through legal norms. And you see this even more nowadays with what are often called dictatorships, but which are fully constitutionalized. You know, and we can think of Putin or Erdogan or whoever else um, or the junta in, in, in Burma or whoever else. Right. Um, so there's still this sort of ambiguity of of, of sort of law and exception that is still applying. So while we're in the state of exception, there's still this kind of legal edifice, which, which remains, um, which is interesting because he also says, kind of, and this is later on, I think in the penultimate uh, section, but that exception is not dictatorship, but a space devoid of law. Um, so for example, the public private distinction and all the other elements of the legal um, apparatus or legal determinations disappear but that the law consistently tries and fails to appropriate or seek a relationship with this anomic state. And theorists do as well. You know, Schmidt also is trying to use this state of exception and the, the idea that he who is sovereign decides the exception to, um, to, to sort of create a law around that. You know, so for, for Schmidt, you know, the state of exception instantiates regime change, which then creates its new legal order, which is what he wanted the Nazi state to do and it failed to do because he ended up with this dual state. It wasn't fully constitutionalized, etc. cetera. Um, so, but I suppose so pushing us a bit further. So, I mean, you know, if we took his, if we took his suggestion, say, and we say, try to avoid using the language of dictatorship, to talk about, say, Nazi, I mean, this is, you know, a kind of uh, a hypothetical, but I mean, what would be the advantages to understanding these regimes as dual, as dual states, for instance? What would be the advantages to avoiding thinking of them as dictatorships in the strictly kind of juridical meaning, constitutional meaning of the term? Um, what is the significance of his point here? Well, it's it, it's surely it's that it blurs the distinction between liberal democracy and fascism, for instance, because liberal so democracy to... depends on exception while still retaining kind of constitutionality, and so did fascism, albeit not to say that they're the same, but that it somehow blurs the boundaries a little bit between them, at least as perceived through Agamben's legal reading. Yeah, I mean, it's a chance to trigger the libs, which is worthwhile to a certain extent but i think what it does point to is the which which is not something which he discusses in great 
in a lot of detail, but is the political content of fascism and the way that you have the the party um, basically mirroring the state, so that you have it's a it's a political rather than a than a legal um, form of form of power. If that if that if that makes sense, I think that's that's the utility that it's it's um, yeah that it has formally the same the same structure of the state of exception as liberal democracies do just with that, just with the party coming to, to run uh, society simultaneously with, with the state. So, I mean, I think that's, it, that, that's his point, right? I, yeah. I would, I would but I suppose um, the emergence then of a kind of the development of these large bureaucracies that have a kind of power that's in de- and administrative structures that have a power that's independent of formal const- of the formal structures of the constitution and legal norms and what have you, um, and that's common across you know across um, the across liberal democracies across the Western world and very visible, for instance, in the New Deal state. I mean, that's the origin of the U.S. administrative state. Um, if that's the case, then and I mean, is this where does this necessarily lead to? his blurring of the bounds it leads to his kind of hysterical or histrionic style of politics where you know he's where he talks about kind of biometric identification and passports as a new kind of um as akin to being locked into a camp i mean is that the is that the implicate you know is that the necessary implication of this idea how might we differentiate fascist states and liberal democracies because clearly there's a difference still, however similar they might formally be from a juridical point of view. No, I think that's it. I mean, I, you know, my answer was kind of following along Agamben's text, but if I step away from it, I'm kind of like, okay, that maybe makes sense in his kind of uh, legal theoretical reading, but I don't necessarily think that that's that politically useful because the political content of those things, of those different regimes is still very important. And we still draw a distinction even now between you know, the Western liberal democracies and China, for example, for how, however much they might come to approximate each other and increasingly seem to do so, we will still draw a line of distinction between them. So I think it's useful in kind of looking at what the role of the state of exception is and how it's played out. But I wouldn't want to hang all my politics on Agamben's model, to put it that way, I think. I think any, any like similarly to saying that something is fascist when it's not, if you say something is like a concentration camp when it's when it doesn't have the the camps and and all of this sort of thing it's like that's a bad that's just a it's a bad i don't know whether logically or not you could justify it but but, but again like you don't just a- argue against something on its own merits or demerits rather than saying this is like a concentration camp this is like okay but then so what what i think the, the answer is when was what freedom is the significance then yeah, well, okay, so that's a better that's a better way to formulate the question, Alex, I think. Because my point is like if you know if we don't want to go in that direction, which we don't, then what is the significance of blurring the lines between these different forms of government? Um, because that's the direction in which he took it. But if we don't want to go in that direction, then what is the significance of drawing attention to it? So yeah, I mean, so to repeat the question, just because we talked over each other, you know, when was freedom then for Agamben? And that's not entirely clear. I mean, we I made reference to kind of 19th century, and that 
period in which law was respected and there was no state of exception. But as we've just said, you know, that's hardly, and Phil, your introduction attested to this, that was hardly um, respected entirely uh, throughout the course of the 19th century in, in, in Western states, Western liberal, but not democratic states. And there's not universal because they weren't democratic states. So that's already problematic. And I think, interestingly, one of the things I read, I read briefly Benjamin Bratton's critique of Agamben, which, okay, we're not going to go there, but he accuses him of a certain romanticism of, um, of this sort of romantic ideal of some notion of freedom um, or of the law, where which was ne- never really existed, perhaps, and only existed in romantics' minds. The sort of more Marxian interpretation would be to say, well, these are the contradictions of bourgeois society, um, and that as bourgeois society becomes more decadent, uh, the, the, the realm of freedom uh, recedes, and uh, and the gains made by the workers' movement also, of course, recede as the workers' movement fades, and that only in communism do you achieve real freedom, right? That you, but would you, and, and here's the question, and I'm kind of preempting what I know is the next question, but um, if Phil will allow me. No. Um, no. <laughs> Um, well, that's the law, but we're just going to play with the law. We're not going to take it seriously. Um, yeah, a little foreshadowing there, huh? Uh, anyway, um, playfulness aside, playfulness aside, um, obviously, I think, you know, it's generally treated as capitalism being the realm of the law and communism then being the realm of freedom. Um, so, but Agamben also seems to suggest kind of the law is everywhere, right? The law is kind of intrinsic to society. So what then happens in, in presumably if you want to truly realize freedom, this would be in a future human society in which humanity, and here he's, this is in his discussion of Benjamin, so that humanity will just play with or study law um, after law has been deactivated. So law just kind of stands as a statement, perhaps as a certain norm there, but is not enforced because the, yeah, the kind so of violence behind to, it is, is taken away. This goes to his point about politics. So he develops this kind of critique of law throughout the book with um, very involved, you know, in-depth um, claims about uh, interpreting the um, decline of the Roman Republic and certain legal categories and so on. Um, and he makes the point then that kind of because he presents such a such a effectively dystopian picture of modern law, given how its inability to emerge kind of to transcend the gray zone of exceptionality but he says that the role of politics must also go beyond simply not only must it escape being trapped in these rigid in these kind of um or well not in fact rigid but in this kind of legal these gray legal zones or that any attempt to in legalize inevitably traps you into the quagmire of states of exception and confusion and contradiction so to avoid that you need politics, he says, but also he then says a politics that goes beyond the idea of a constituent power. Because if you have a, a single center of power, the of political power, the idea generally is that that political power generates a legal framework in order to govern, to govern itself, to govern the society in question. And he says, not only do we want to avoid, you kind of avoid legalization, you also want to avoid the very idea of a concentrated political power, avoid the concept of a constituent power leading to this kind of, I have no other way to describe it. He doesn't use the word, but it seems like a kind of anarchist utopianism, which is so vague and um, so vague and dimly outlined that it's very difficult to have a sense 
of what it might mean practically. Um, and I'm not even sure it's useful to describe it as communism because he, why doesn't he use that word then? Um, and he doesn't kind of talk any, he just says that law will be something which exists without force or validity and that actions would be means without ends. And it's very, this kind of very odd, almost like an Alice in Wonderland or looking glass world. And perhaps it's partly deliberate the way he tries to kind of suggest something which is so foreign and alien to our understanding and experience of these basic concepts. But it um, it felt to me also deeply evasive, verging on, verging even on being mystical. Yeah. Well, one one thing just to just to kind of link this to what Alex was saying is that I think one of the reasons why I did enjoy reading this book and and his other book a lot was that he doesn't. I mean, I guess the the one way to kind of criticize state of exception or, or respond to COVID is to talk about freedom. But I don't think he. I don't know if he uses that word in yeah in the whole of the book. Really, I mean, it's interesting because it's not. That's not his vocabulary. That's you know the way that you would <clears throat> you know could could potentially start to think about it. But he doesn't. He doesn't talk about freedom. That's not a um, not the central kind of goal of what of what any project that he would he might be trying to legally it would have to be legally instantiated presumably and that would involve being ensnared in all these contradictions that he's so sensitive and attuned to yeah Yeah. i mean and i guess what's the implication of that is that is it that that there's no way to uh, escape that aporia all those you know those well i think it's that i think maybe this is why it's not communism for him because um, to have that, I mean, the in the classical kind of Marxist idea, obviously, it's a transition from socialism, which has these structures, political and legal structures and so on, into a kind of a transcendence of those in a different kind of, um, in an entirely different kind of dispensation. And so because he doesn't have any sense of transition um, or how an order might evolve, I think he's forced to be... Um, to kind of, I suppose, almost smudge some of these questions into this shapeless, these shapeless forms with which he leaves us at the end of the book. Yeah, um, and it feels a bit kind of tragic in that sort of Vivarian sense of, of just being that we're all kind of trapped um, in this sort of permanent state of exception and that there's no real return to law and that itself has its own contradictions and yeah, then there's only this sort of mystical potential, almost eschatological future in which, um, you know, violence and law are completely severed by politics. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not really sure what to do with that. <laughs> so this takes us, I suppose, listeners' questions I wanted to bring in because we've got a few from that came in from listeners we want to talk about. But before that, I suppose, getting away, just stepping aside from the content of the book to think about how it functioned in the specific context of the war on terror, the global war on terror, and how effective, useful it was, to put it kind of crudely, instrumentally, but also simply what place, what role it occupied in the context of the global war on terror as critical theory. Because one thing that strikes me just to... Um, just to get us going, I suppose, is that the his hysterical responses um, with respect to, say, refusing to go to the US and comparing biometric identification to being tattooed in Auschwitz, um, while it was criticized and noted at the time, it never drew upon him the kind of the ire and the um, ferocity of the response with which his public stance on COVID has drawn to him. 
And so it's difficult not to see, not to read that in terms of a very different political context, given the, um, the people that once uh, didn't want to draw attention to his foibles have now turned on him um, with such kind of um, ferocity in, due to his, uh, the unpopularity of his stance. And this takes us, I guess, to Jeff Schellenberger's point, which is that there seems to be no escape from emergency politics. So, you know, the right had their emergency with the global war on terror. The left has had their emergency with COVID. And then the right has a counter emergency, which is framed in, emer in emergency terms. Jeff Schellenberger makes this point very well in his essay about how the attempt to kind of chisel back lockdown in the states at the state level in the US has been in the form of banning kind of these extreme measures of banning mask mandates, ending lockdowns through kind of, um, again, it has the form, a kind of legal legal mandates that have the same kind of emergency form. And so it seems that, you know, Agamben's theory is right to the extent that it seems impossible to escape. So how effective, what role did Agamben's critical theory place in the war on terror? Um, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess to answer the question directly, like how effective was it in terms of stopping the global war on terror? Like not very, critical <laughs> theory never, never is. I mean, maybe that's a bit too high of a bar to hold it to. But no, I think, you know, so you see on the back of the book, Zizek blurbs it, um, Judith Butler blurbs it as well. Like he was, you know, he was he had the big names on the uh, on the back they of the book both, saying how great it was. They both turned on him um, um, now with respect to the pandemic, or at least they're not on the same side. And I'm no. sure Butler would kind of um, take him to task in particular. So, and I would say that, you know, to a certain extent, saying saying that you're not going to travel to America, keeping a consistent position, I think it is intellectually consistent. And he says, that yeah, but he didn't travel to America. That's the point. Well, and that, that's that's when you lose respect. But if you know, if he's stuck, stuck by his guns, and he says that when ter terrorism ceased to exist as an as a cause for measures of exception, the invention of an of an epidemic offers the ideal pretext for widening them beyond all known limits. I mean, that is a consistent intellectual position, whether you agree or disagree with it. And I think it just reflects the, you know, as you were basically, as you were saying, Phil, the changed context um, and the changed political factors, rather than there being a sort of much, much of uh, like his ideas haven't got gotten worse, that they're, they're the same. So yeah, I don't know. What makes what struck me reading this again for the first time in a long time was the, um, the amount, the kind of the rigor, I suppose, devoted to issues that are, you know, obscure. I don't mean obscure in the sense of irrelevant, but I mean obscure in the sense of so highly expert that it's very difficult to engage in. So the kind of, you know, questions of our fairly arcane Latin translation, um, Latin etymology, uh, Roman law and history. Um, and it's amazing that this was, you know, that this kind of level of detail was born aloft as part of the critique of um, in the period of the war on terror. And so I didn't ask, you know, whether or not he stopped the war on terror. I mean, obviously we know that he didn't and it would be an unfair kind of um, an unfair expectation. But the question of whether what role it occupied um, and like you say, George, his ideas have stayed the same. Um, and whereas the kind of politics around him has shifted, um, but has did the, you know, the normalization of these theories and their extension in the academy doesn't seem to have on their ex acceptance by the left, it doesn't seem to have 
not only did it not stop the war on terror, but it seems to have made absolutely no difference to the um, extent of emergency politics and the fact that everything is still framed through emergency politics. And increasingly so, competing emergency politics, right? Yeah. Which I think the left was less inclined to, I would say, at the time of the war on terror. Obviously, in relation to the war on terror, it wanted to oppose that and therefore, you know, wouldn't. But but it didn't really seek to mobilize, I think, emergency politics in the way that I think across the political spectrum, everybody sets their own emergency politics against another. And even, and to borrow the point from Jeff Schullenberger, even the anti-COVIDian stuff in favor of the repeal of various COVID measures itself uh, attempts a certain emergency, a point that you've already, uh, attempts its own emergency yeah. politics, a point you've already made, Phil. Um, so I think so that, at, at least in terms of sensitizing us to to that, I guess it's important, but it, it seems that the effect of it has been completely null. Oh, I don't know, but but but, but oh. for the same reasons that we just, sorry, just, just one point is that for, for the reasons that we discussed, there's something somehow ungraspable about this insofar, which relates to my question of when was freedom, right? Because it's a question that he doesn't really broach, that it leaves you with not very many tools for how to get beyond emergency politics. I think probably I'm kind of with Benjamin here in terms of like a revolutionary emergency politics that you need to have a real emergency politics, which breaks with capitalism effectively. But, you know, that's that's just kind of shouting revolution into the void. I think, yeah, I mean, we, we're going to obviously continue to talk about different sorts of emergencies and what what the, I guess, what the lessons are. But one thing that you could, to be more cynical about it, is you could take the lesson from the war on terror that emergencies work. Like, you can get what you want. Like, why, if you have no ability to build a, you know, to build a, a positive political project, but you have some, some, <laughs> some graphs then you can you can you can do something with with all it of works, that. It works. It works both ways, I suppose. It cuts both ways because it's not only the left that has shifted from being critical of emergency politics to wholeheartedly embracing it, but the right that has also shifted from embracing emergency politics to being opposed to emergency politics. And I suppose as we're trapped between those kind of pivots and swings, that there seems to be no way to break that to break that spiral. And like, that is indeed, um, that is indeed uh, the problem which Gambin kind of articulates and to which he offers this extraordinarily vague and elusive and frustrating vision at the end of a politics, which is, it seems to be inspired by the Benjaminian idea, but it doesn't really, it doesn't seem to be meaningful in any kind of concrete way. So this takes us to the listener questions, um, and we've collated some of them. So thank you for sending them in. Um, the first one is, uh, for a Gambon, is there any meaningful distinction between emergency politics and politics legislation in general? I think in the classical period, I suppose there might be perhaps, um, but it seems to me that the whole thrust of the argument is that at least since the First World War, perhaps since the fall of the Third Republic, there is no that essentially politics is just the management of emergency or yeah. emergency politics. Well, he said, he and says it's quite, ex- would have been. he says it quite explicitly that, um, well, that all that he's writing here is about the eclipse of politics. That's his kind of ultimate point, which is reduced to violence that makes law in the best of cases, 
um, and really is mostly negotiation with law, which is what we have today. So um, politics, at least in revolutionary politics or politics that really try to instantiate a new order has been squeezed out by permanent emergency. I think that's at least how I read that point. That takes yeah. us to, sorry, George, go on. No, no, I think I think that's just the, the answer to the question is, is in what is in the use of politics, emergency politics, politics, legislation in general, that that's that's what's been evacuated or been. I can't remember the exact phrase, ways that he talks about it, but certainly you see eclipse. Yeah. And you see the, the shrinking and the kind of the reduction of, of the, the realm of the political um, to essentially these these as, as we've just been talking about, all of these juridical and uh, legal um, <clears throat> questions, with all of which ultimately rely on uh, at base the, the state of exception. So just, 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 just to, just to no, come, come no, on. no, no, we've got to move on. So, is a Gambon's theory a useful predictive theory? Can it be used to predict where we'll be heading next? So, certainly, I think Gambon would be vindicated by Kabidian politics um, and the fact that it followed kind of fairly smoothly, not exactly hot on the heels of, but fairly smoothly from the. Um, decline of the war on terror, the winding down of the war on terror, um, that it may be with the Trump administration as an interregnum between the war on terror under Obama and the um, and the Covidian kind of emergency. So it seems to me, if not exactly predictive, his hard claim about the fact that this paradigm is locked in as the model of government in liberal democracies that seems to me to have been vindicated in the last years and indeed vindicated by the end of Covidian politics, because we have now a geopolitical emergency with the even, I mean, you know, people um, raising the prospect of nuclear war since the Russians put their strategic nuclear forces on alert. So I guess if there was anything to be extracted in terms of prediction, can it be used to predict we'll be heading next? The listener asks. I guess it'll be that there will be another emergency and that'll probably, my guess would be, that'll probably be the climate emergency and whether or not how it might scramble the coordinates again between left and right, the way in which left and right flipped from the war on terror to COVID. Um, you know, hard to say at this point, I suppose. Um, and then the follow on is where, which is the next enemy that must be legislated for, or is it not so easy to tell? Do either of you have thoughts about that part of the question? Uh, no, well, more just about the former, which is that I think it's predictive in a deeper sense in terms of what it says about the stability or ability to, to um, reproduce itself that the legal order has. And I think there's a suggestion in Agamben, though I may have taken this from elsewhere, so excuse me, I can't recall exactly, but that it that all the kind of legal orders eventually start to crumble and decay, and that actually the force of X law, you know, as <laughs> law crossed out, which is to say exception, um, keeps the law operative even through its suspension. So it's it's kind of emergency politics is, again, reading between the lines and rephrasing it, I guess, in my own terms, the state of exception and emergency politics perpetuates the current order, which is collapsing, in fact. And that you can see this, and I think we can see the lack of the, the lack of purchase the law has by reference to looking at declining regime legitimacy across Western states and beyond. Yeah, and so, so I mean, emerge, so I have yeah, go on, I have a I have an, a suggestion here. So if you you know to go back to what we're talking about, the different kind of periods of the um, <clears throat> the kind of the states of exception. That in the Cold War you had the the, the danger was a whole block was like a whole country 
then you had the war on terror which was individuals like bad bad individual people um and now it's gotten smaller again this is hardly an original point but it's gotten smaller so it's now a microscopic um um enemy uh, it, it, a very tiny enemy of the people i think as, as strake put it so i mean can you get any smaller than yeah, that so it's yes. going to go big again yes. so no it was, to go it was planetary emergency. let's not forget the cold war was the atomic age so it was actually atoms crashing against each other which was the danger which is way smaller than microbes so oh. to follow if i'm taking up your stupid analogy then you know i'm still winning <laughs> so okay but actually my suggestion was going to be you've got one option smaller and that's strings um like bad strings um terrible strings the other is aliens like b- bigger than the whole world so you go right to the to the to the super macro again okay so let's move um, but so... no actually i did have a serious point though which was in terms of this predict um predictive ability and sort of what 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 comes next so to, he makes two i think there are two points here one is that he talks about um the voluntary creation of a permanent state of emergency becoming an essential practice of contemporary states and that's like yeah so the voluntary uh, nature of it it doesn't really have to correspond necessarily to an objective threat and he also criticizes as naive the idea um that you actually have to have any objective basis because who is it or what is it that determines the state of exception it is the ability to call that an exception so it's you know that that kind of schmittian point about the ability to decide on the exception that's you know you, you post um you post hoc justify it or in the in the doing of it you've you've said this is sufficient to um to create a state of exception it doesn't have to have, fulfill any objective criteria of any sort but i think it's worth stressing also what alex said which is just to derive the political consequences of this suspension of the legal order so there's never any the constant um, reliance on emergency to justify and legitimate rule means that there is never any question of the purpose of political order or the need for a positive or substantive political vision or the question of freedom either. It's the constant, these very basic questions of politics, freedom and order, um, and maybe even justice too, that all of these things are effectively um, perpetually suspended uh, as a as a result of the need to tackle whatever the the emergency is, and I think this it's is bare, very... it's, it's bare it's bare life, right? It's a reduction of all of these. That's probably maybe why it doesn't talk about freedom that much because the, the biopolitical aspect of it, it, you know, you reduce the whole discussion to you know the bare to bare life, which is not you know doesn't require freedom; it just requires not dying. Yeah, so I suppose my point is, though, only to, I mean, so I'm agreeing, but only to say that it's, I think it's very concretely visible in the practice of governments. It's not something which he talks, you know, very esoterically. When he talks about specific governments or parties, he's generally talking about the past, the Third Republic or the New Deal or Nazi Germany or whatever. Whereas I think the practical benefits and effects of emergency rule are very evident in the way in which our current governments and political parties behave. So I think that's important to, I mean, that's important to stress. So uh, we've got to wrap there, I'm afraid, because we're running out of time very quickly. Uh, So apologies if we didn't get your question, um, but thank you for sending them in. And if you really wanted, if you really insist, if you really do want us to revisit it, then feel free to ping it to us again um, for our um, 
alpha bonus bonus sessions which will be coming up in future or please and do keep them coming in for the next for the next um installment of the reading group where we'll be continuing the theme of the politics of fear and emergency politics in this in this context so thank you very much and i'll hand over to alex to wrap us up yeah uh join us uh, next month uh we're doing two books in sequence over the next two months on the politics of fear um they're more concrete and sociological and political um so uh less roman law uh i'll, I'll put it that way all right that's it for now catch you later bye-bye <laughs>